Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. We have a lot to talk about mm-hmm. again today. Mm-hmm. Some of it might make people angry. What? I Us? know I'm angry. No. Yeah. What are you no, about we're about? not. We're not going to make people angry. We're going to try. But some of to. these issues. Yes, we are will enough to anger people. Um, angry along with us this morning is the uh, Chinese government. Yeah, I would be angry if I were the Chinese government. Yeah, uh, they noticed. They noticed that the U.S. State Department had mm-hmm. changed the wording on its page on Taiwan, which we spoke about yesterday. And thanks to KJ No for flagging this for yep. us because we probably would have missed it. Yeah, no, KJ No was was uh, among the first to to notice it. Yeah, I was kind of surprised actually that it took the Chinese government five days, right? as, as far as I know, right? to respond to it. Maybe they said something. Uh, you know, earlier than that. But the foreign ministry spoke today about the change. They called it petty, petty, petty fictionalizing of the actual relationship and said uh, this kind of political manipulation on the Taiwan question is an attempt to change the status quo in the Taiwan Strait and will inevitably the, the translation is stir up a fire that only burns the U.S. But basically mm. they're saying this is going to backfire. I just don't understand what the Biden administration thinks they can accomplish by doing something so silly like this. Yeah, all, I, all they're doing is angering the Chinese. So what do you get out of that? I really don't know. I really don't know because, again, I don't I really don't think the U.S. has any intention of, uh, you know, c- committing any more to the war effort in Taiwan than it is in Ukraine and mm-hmm. probably even less, you know, mm-hmm. again, like mm-hmm. with the, the arms that we sell to Taiwan are, we don't send our best is, is what I'll say. And we no. charge them quite a lot for it. So yeah, I think that relationship is really cynical and it really does. It does make me wonder what the end game is. Yeah, I don't get if it. There is one beyond just like provocations on, on paper that don't change the status quo at all. And remember one of Bill, Bill Clinton, one of uh, uh, Joe Biden's selling points during the campaign was that he was Mr. Foreign Affairs. He, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was vice president for eight years focusing on foreign affairs. He had been in the Senate and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee since 1972. Yeah. He's supposed to know better. Yeah. Who knows why? I, I, I just don't understand the, the reasoning, the, the the analysis that goes into a decision like this. No, it really, it, it, it is very confusing to me. And I really would not like it to backfire for the people of Taiwan. Although, yeah. you know, I don't want to speak for them, but I can't imagine a lot of them really relish the kind of bloodshed that we're seeing elsewhere. Agreed. Um, the other interesting thing that I learned as a result of this, I, I learned that there is such a thing as political risk insurance. The Wall Street Journal today had a story about political risk insurance companies uh, doing brisk business when it comes to China and Taiwan. So apparently this is political risk insurance pays companies when conflicts boil over. A relatively niche category of insurance. It covers a variety of hazards. Other insurance types tend not to touch. A missile slamming into a factory. The nationalization of private assets following a coup or currency stranded in a country by a government action. Yeah. So, the political risk business of one insurer, Vantage Group Holdings, which they measured in the volume of new insurance proposals submitted to underwriters, had jumped about 25% from the last quarter of 2021 to the first quarter of 2022, driven by China-related concerns. Mm-hmm. And this was going against a trend of declining business over that time frame in all other areas. So, right. You yeah. know, the first time I ever heard of insurance like this, I, I was... 
I was um, hired by a by a hedge fund to do a report for them. They had purchased a silver mine on the border of Oman and Yemen, not thinking that Al Qaeda controls the border of Oman and Yemen. And they wanted an analysis on whether or not I thought they would be able to mine their silver. And I said that I didn't think that they could do it safely. I mean, if they wanted to hire a private army to protect the mine while they were mining it, that's one thing. But to just go show up and start mining your silver, I said, I don't think you can do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little bit more complicated than that, but that was the bottom line. And they said, okay, no big deal. We have risk insurance. I had never heard of risk insurance mm-hmm. before, but they got their money back. So, you know, there it is. Congratulations to them. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this this story and this presentation by the Wall Street Journal is that this is how it led the story. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made companies more aware of the potential for upheaval overseas, driving interest in political risk insurance for two other potential hotspots, China and Taiwan. And now I would just say, I don't know that it is specifically the war in Ukraine that you should blame for an increase in uh, the perception of risk when it comes to China and Taiwan. I mean, yeah, of course, I don't want to pretend that, you know, it really is right. I mean, much is being made of China's relationship with Russia right now, but it is not. It is not Russia, you know, driving these uh, the the introduction of uncertainty into the status quo here. And it hasn't been for a long time. So, yeah, Agreed. things like things like the State Department changing its language about Taiwan on its page probably right. was driving this. A couple of other things that have piqued my interest uh, in the news today. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who is known in the Philippines as Bong Bong, that's his lifelong nickname. He's the son of the notorious Ferdinand Marcos, the former dictator of the Philippines, and his wife, the equally notorious Imelda Marcos, she of the thousand pair of shoes, uh, pairs of shoes. Uh, he was handily elected president of the Philippines yesterday to... Um, to replace uh, uh, Duterte, who was equally awful. Yeah, Duterte seems monstrous. Did he? I know I could look this up right now, but did he just finish his term? Did he, he decide not term. to run? So he can't yeah, run he again. Was, he was trying to have the constitution changed to allow him to run for another term, and he couldn't get it done. So, much to the surprise of a lot of people, he went away quietly. Uh, but they've replaced one strong man with another now. Bong Bong Marcos is fully aware of what people outside the Philippines think about his family. Mm -hmm. And so he told the media last night when he, you know, announced that, you know, we won, I'm going to be the new president. He asked that people judge him by his actions, not by the actions of his family members. So... My own personal opinion, as I said a second ago, is you replace one strong man with another strong man. But I guess we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. Right. Isn't Duterte's daughter the vice president now? Oh, Speaking I don't know. Family, uh, oh, let I me wouldn't look be that surprised. I'm pretty sure. I was also confused about how, you you know, I guess they didn't run together. Man. No idea. Let me let me look it up. Oh, real quick man. How you can tell me about like, you me. know what? This is interesting enough that we should try to find somebody who can talk to us about the Philippines. I'd, I'd like to have some answers to these questions. Mm-hmm. You know, where's where are the Philippines going? Yeah, I, I don't know. Sarah Duterte. Oh, good grief. Yep. She was the she was the mayor of a of a city. And now she. Great. That's just grand. Michelle, uh, something that I know you were interested in in the news as, I've as been very I was excited about this story. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it is a terrible thing that terrible. is happening. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. So because of 
climate change, uh, the, the water levels at Lake Mead, which is one of the two reservoirs that provides uh, Las Vegas and much of southern Nevada and northern New Mexico and Arizona with its water and, and southern California with its water, it, the, the level has been dropping dramatically. And now it's at the lowest level ever. And things are starting to be exposed or washed up on shore or stuck in the mud. A couple of weeks ago, we mentioned on the show that a barrel uh, became exposed and there was a dead body inside the barrel. It had been shot twice. And the police have said that this was likely a mob hit from Las Vegas. Uh, they've dated it to somewhere between the mid 70s and the early 80s based on the style of shoes mm -hmm. that were on the body. Well, yesterday, another body. God, sorry, God forbid <laughs> anyone ever finds my body. They'd be very confused. I have yeah, a lot of stuff say, from the 70s and 80s. Where the heck did those shoes come yeah, from? Yeah, exactly. So she's wearing her dresses from the 70s, but her dental work is definitely from the 90s. <laughs> right. you know. yeah. Another body uh, was found yesterday. And uh, the police chief of, of the local area said, look, the mob in Las Vegas over the years, over the decades, and this was sort of immortalized in, in the Scorsese movie Casino, one of the greatest movies ever, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the mob did this kind of thing. They would kill people. They would stuff them into a barrel and throw them into Lake Mead thinking Nobody's ever going to find them at the bottom of Lake Mead. A well, massive, massive it's reservoir. Massive. Yeah. And, and now it's drying up. And so all these bodies are becoming exposed. It is a sort of horrifying metaphor for what's going oh. on. Like the, the reason Lake Mead oh, is, is at such low awful. levels is that the West has been in this mega drought. Yes. Right. For more for more than a decade. Yes. And it's very dangerous. It's very bad. And we're sort of standing Indeed. around watching this this slow developing but very real crisis that is going to have a huge effect on our lives, but it moves so slowly and there's a sense that you, there's nothing you can really do about it. And so instead we are sort of entertaining ourselves with the st true crime right. bits and bobs that, that are revealed as the water level sinks. Right. There's, some, there's something that is really, uh, the, the image that that provides is, is very yeah. evocative, I feel. It's really crazy. I mean, can you imagine a, a body from the 70s? I mean, that's, it's an entire lifetime ago. And you never knew what happened to this person. John, and remind me to tell you the story of the body that was found in a trunk that was put in the storage space in a house that someone put it in the storage space of this house. The house then changed hands a oh couple, uh, 10 years later, then changed hands again, like 20 years later, 50 years later, <gasps> someone wants to do renovations on the house. And they're like, yeah, we want to expand this, this crawl space. Let's just drag this trunk out. And then they find the body of this woman who was killed by a man, presumably killed by a man she'd been having an affair with at her work when she was like 19 years old. Oh and he got God. away with it for something like 40 or 50 years. And then as police were coming to, to pick him up, killed himself. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. She was an immigrant from Central America. Her she just disappeared. Her family hadn't heard about her. She was apparently pregnant with his child. And this is, yeah. See, this kind of thing happens. Yeah. It happens. We said on the show a month or so ago when they were tearing down the Coliseum in uh, in Oakland. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. They found a body inside the concrete wall mm -hmm. and they said it might have been put there in the 1920s when they built the place. Listen, there's bodies everywhere. There are. There's there's bodies you're probably everywhere. within 100 feet of a body no matter Crazy. where you are. <laughs> Finally, there's this odd kerfuffle that's going on right now between former McCain presidential campaign chairman Steve Schmidt 
who's now a Democrat, and the McCain family. Um, Schmidt told the New York Times yesterday that he wrongly lied to the media back in 2008 when he said that John McCain had not had an affair with a lobbyist. You remember at the time uh, there were these reports McCain had had this affair with some uh, lobbyist and he denied it and she denied it and Cindy McCain denied it. And I mean, they had like really strongly, stridently denied it. Well, Schmidt said it was true. It's just that, well, his words, John McCain's lie became mine, he said. And he kept repeating the lie, knowing that it was true. For whatever reason I mean, now, that's your 14 own lie, years buddy. later. If you're, yeah, if you're saying your you lie. knew it and you lied about it, that you own that. Yeah. You own that. It's his lie. Yeah. Here, 14 years later now, he's like, it was a lie. It was the McCain's fault. He personally attacked McCain's daughter, Megan McCain. Sure, I mean. Everybody hates Megan McCain. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, he attacked her for her book sales, right? She did. Yeah. She actually came out and addressed that and said, "No, no, no. Lots of people bought my book. Lots of people downloaded it. Right. This he was just accused a, her of this buying is the a book. hardback thing. Yeah. It doesn't represent actual book sales. Right. I mean, who knows who's right. who knows who knows." Um, Schmidt once called John McCain, "quote the greatest man I've ever known." Unquote. It appears that's changed. Yeah. It sounds like I was I was joking that this is uh, he's, yeah. the Democrats, Michael Cohen. Yeah. Which, the De- yeah. The Democrats, oh, Michael no. Cohen. Oh, my gosh. My, Donald Trump lied to me. Can you believe it? Right. I feel so bad about all that work. I all that shady business I did for him for all those years. Suddenly, now that I'm facing consequences for it, I feel really bad about it. Yeah, and just, I don't know that Schmidt is facing any consequences for I, anything. I this just it. seems like a weird personal vendetta that's suddenly been turned on. Just as an aside, before we go to our first guest, mm-hmm. when COVID hit and everybody started doing interviews on the TV news networks from home, um, it was kind of this sport. It became a sport to look at the backgrounds right. to see how people live, right? Yeah. Um, Steve Schmidt, has the most beautiful kitchen I've ever seen in my life. And he was actually, I saw an article in CNN saying that it was generally acknowledged that Steve Schmidt has the beautiful, most beautiful kitchen anybody mm-hmm. has ever seen. That's why he does his, his interviews from the kitchen, mm-hmm. right? Um, so he's made plenty of money. He's famous. He's wealthy. Uh, now he decided to attack uh, the McCain now family. Now it's his time to really indulge himself. And it turns out <laughs> what he likes is a petty family feud. So go for it. Well, we're going to have a, a lot going on today. We have John Jeter. We have uh, Mark Schmoelli. We have Jim Cavanaugh. And then to cap off the show, we have Paul Wright. Lots of important issues coming up. So everybody, stay tuned. We have a lot more coming up. We're live in D.C. You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And uh, we got a bunch of, I think, connected economic and political stories to Mm -hmm. get into, starting with the fact that there is a new Lend-Lease in town. (laughs) 
This is uh, separate from the deal to send $40 billion more dollars to Ukraine that was just apparently hammered out in Congress. It has yet to reach the president, but it should be on its way there soon. And of course, to get this deal, uh, COVID funding was stripped from the Ukraine funding mm-hmm. bill. Because we don't need that. No, of course not. Absolutely not. Uh, and speaking of COVID, the Washington Post has what I find to be a really offensive editorial about how we can do better in the next pandemic. Uh, it's mostly about how bad Donald Trump was and how we need to rebuild, uh, you know, faith in each other and has nothing at all about our totally broken healthcare system. And yet, chillingly, the New York Times is telling us the good times are now. So I I don't know what that means about what's coming. I guess worse times. (laughs) Well, the Biden administration said day before yesterday that we're going to have we could have another million deaths in the United States by September, Wow, which is just awful because this sub sub variant, I guess, is making everybody sick. Also, but but deaths are down. So I don't know how they come to this conclusion. Also, Joe Biden is uh, apparently uh, as we walked in here, he was about to come out and make some address on inflation. So we'll see if that pops up while we're speaking. Joining us for all of these uh, conversations is John Jeter. He's an author and two times Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and an award winning foreign correspondent on two continents. John, always great to have you. Thank you for having me, Michelle. So, as I mentioned, Joe Biden has signed a new Lend-Lease Act for Ukraine, which will streamline the process of getting supplies of all sorts to the country and getting promises of repayment sometime. I mean, it's comic because the idea that funding Ukraine has been slow or held up or needed to be streamlined is pretty funny. Um, This also happened as Congress was coming to a deal on another $40 billion for Ukraine, which was arrived at by decoupling that $40 billion from the $10 billion in funding for COVID testing and treatment that Democrats have been trying to get through Congress for weeks, for possibly months now. I forget when exactly uh, they stripped it from that spending bill because they didn't want it to be clawed back from the states thinking they could get something through since, hey, they control Congress and the White House, but they haven't been. And so uh, this decoupling also happened at Biden's urging, right? He said, it's very important to get this to my desk. So, you know, why don't you separate these two bills? And of course, he he said, oh, yes, indeed it is. I also think it's important that we get this COVID funding. You you better send me that bill too. But like, I don't know, John, to me, this is a, a big middle finger to the population that this White House is supposed to be serving. And, and I wanted to ask, you know, how how would you react to this as an American and what you think the economic impact of this new Lend-Lease program would be? Well, I think it, it signals to me that uh, well, it reinforces, I guess, uh, the fact that Joe Biden does not work for the American people. He works for Wall Street and the defense contractors. And uh, they are doubling down on stupid and trying to shovel as much money to the defense industry as possible, throwing uh, good money after bad. Is that the, is that the saying? Good yes. money after bad? Oh, yeah. this, seems like, this seems like bad money after bad. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, this is just, uh, I, you know, they're digging a hole because I don't think they know how to stop digging, right? Like this is not going to help them uh, this COVID thing has not gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this abortion rights thing, I think it's going to blow up in their faces. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I don't I don't think they know how to get out of it, though. Right. This is what they do. They don't have many ways to make money anymore. We don't make anything of value. We don't make cards. We don't sell anything abroad. Uh, we, we finance stuff and we sell 
uh, weapons to kill people. Yeah. That's how the United States um, capitalists make their money. And so I, I just think, you know, Joe Biden is uh, he's he's backed into a corner and doesn't see any way out. And so the only way out is just to keep sort of uh, circulating billions of dollars into the pockets of defense contractors. I mean, the, exactly. I wonder if you think this will also blow up in people's faces. I mean, there. I think that there is a lot of genuine sympathy for the people of Ukraine. And of course, we are also experiencing a wall to wall propaganda about this war. But I do wonder if Americans I, I don't know how many times they can see this and and not eventually get tired of it and and think, I mean, come on, this is pretty basic. This isn't even funding for some sort of complicated long-term goal. This is, we're still, you know, the, the virus is still spreading. People are still getting sick and we don't have money to for treatments, you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I just, there's such a disconnect between our political class and our, the academics and what real people are experiencing right now. And mm-hmm. so I don't think that, uh, I don't think that many of us really have a, a, a good idea of what's going on on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit surprised that there's such overwhelming support for uh, the Ukrainians mm-hmm. in this war. At least I would think there'd be a little bit more nuance and understanding of what's happening and how war is not good mm-hmm. for anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, Putin is not necessarily the villain here. I, maybe he's not the hero, but he's certainly not the villain here. But I just think that there's so much of it is, is based, is grounded in our inability to understand what's going on uh, with our neighbors. So just as one example, I was speaking to a woman in the Berkeley area just yesterday who was telling me that the school lunches for the kids are so bad, right, that she's thinking about forming uh, a kind of a potluck uh, in the, wow. in the, for the neighborhood school where they provide, uh, uh, they're trying to figure out what to do it for free, of course, um, to provide food for, for the children at the school. You think about Berkeley, which is right in the backyard of Silicon Valley. Right. And, and, and but we've got $40 billion for uh, 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 Ukraine, yeah. but not enough to, to feed our children. It's like, it's like you, uh, the famous line from Tupac, you know, we've got money for wars, but we can't feed the poor. Yeah. Right. And the other thing is it's not $40 billion for uh, reconstruction or resettlement. I mean, there's some fra- fractions of it will go toward this stuff, but mostly it seems like it's $40 billion for missiles that are going to be used up in a matter of days, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's yeah, also, it's just yeah. the, the, the least effective thing it seems like you could possibly be doing well you know to, uh, and, they, and, they, and they have to know that ukraine cannot win this war there's no military expert worth his weight uh who who believes that ukraine can actually win this war they cannot yeah i also find that among like among my regular friends reg, regular people who are not in the media there is a sense that i mean there, there is sympathy you know there's antipathy toward russia and sympathy for ukraine generally but there is also a sense that this is weird it's it's weird that zelensky is like addressing the grammys right. it's weird that the yeah. uh, the ukrainian Agreed. flag is hanging over the nfl dra- uh, draft like i i think it also people are genuinely like oh yeah like sure it seems seems bad seems bad for a country to invade another but why why are we getting nailed with this so so hard and i think they're right and i i do wonder if like eventually we will hit a point where um some of that sympathy starts to to wane 
But on the topic, I, of, I think well, that happened. I think that happened with the first Iraq War, didn't it? Where there was this public support, and then it kind of turned on a dime when it became clear to an increasing number of people that uh, the war was not as advertised. So yeah, I mean, I think that's very possible, mm-hmm. and I would say even probable as our uh, as our economic conditions at home worsen. Well, that's what I. Yeah, I think it might happen. I think it might happen more quickly than people realize. Mm-hmm. And again, because of exactly those economic conditions. But so at the same time, we have this story in the New York Times that is telling us for tens of millions of Americans, the good times are right now. And it makes the case that we are living in a sort of unheralded boom time that for the 158 million Americans who are employed, uh, their prospects are great. Half of those workers have retirement accounts that were fattened by a prolonged bull market. There are 83 million owner-occupied homes in the U.S., and they are basically now giant piggy banks that families live inside because the the house values are going up so high. It tells us 40 million households in this country are doing pretty well, and the number of workers who expect to work into their 60s has fallen below 50% for the first time, which sounds great. And yet... I mean, I, I think home buying is a really big factor here. This all seems to apply to people who were able to get those homes in the first place and whose pension accounts, you know, grew before the pandemic and the losses we're starting to see. Because I can tell you, mine is down <laughs> by a lot. Everybody's is down uh, this first quarter. And it also, you know, the story acknowledges that if you are talking about uh, black and Hispanic home ownership, that has not kept pace with overall trends. And so I want to ask John, you know, the tech boom, home prices skyrocketing, all of that definitely is helping some people. But if you are getting an hourly hourly wage and not a salary, if you didn't have the money to invest in some startup that, that hit it big, I feel like life is just getting scarier. And I wanted to ask, and I'm sort of asking for a historical perspective here, if possible, it It feels like the good times right now are very segregated. And I am wondering if that is always the case or if there was a time in this country when our fortunes, you know, across communities were were more tightly linked. That's a great question. Uh, I don't know if we have time to get into it in as much depth as I would love to. But I'll say this. um, I, I, I think that the contraction we saw in the first quarter of the year signals, um, uh, the return of stagflation to the U.S. economy. And stagflation is important historically because it is it was transformative. It's, fa- it's foundational to the economy that we have now, where uh, basically the uh, U.S. United States government and all of its uh, uh, ancillary uh, uh, departments uh, guarantee profits for corporations, right? Uh, the problem with that, of course, is that, the, that now the money is concentrated in the hands of a few people, while the rest of us are anywhere from desperately poor to just getting by. Uh, and so what we saw, the stagflation crisis was also the result of, to some extent, uh, this the New Deal coalition, right? Roughly between 1933 and 1973, where we saw black and white workers, not perfectly, um, you know, that racism still existed, but we saw them organized in labor unions. One third of, of uh, uh, workers were represented by unions in 1973 when the stagflation crisis hit. Uh, one third of those workers were black. Uh, we saw 
the working class account for, wages accounted for about 53% of GDP, gross domestic product. Now we see it's about 43. I think it's gone up, I think, last year to about 44%. Uh, but but so the, the point is that the segregation is, in fact, the point. Because what's happening is that we have an economic pie, right? Let's say we have this pie. You split it in half between workers and capital. What the political class has told the working class over the last 50 years is you get your cut, the white working class, you take your cut from the blacks, from the Latinos, from women, right? We're going to we're gonna take an increasingly bigger share, but you can get yours from, from them, right? So instead of uh, the working class working together, blacks and white workers, black and white workers working together to uh, carve out more and more space for themselves, they're just fighting each other. We're just fighting one another, right, is what's happening. And so, yeah, it, it's, segregate, it's segregated by design to divide the working class to, to sort of disrupt that old formula, that old poem, we are many and they are few, yeah. well, now that the many are fighting one another. So, yeah, it is, it, is, it is historical and it is epic and it is deliberate. I do feel like the process of getting older is is this sort of long process of figuring out if you do indeed live in interesting times or if it's right. always been this way. You know, like the longer your perspective gets, you go, huh, you know, and, and I think also like a, a, in the United States, at least a, a relatively new reluctance to to hearken back to a, a good old days that, you know, is probably a lot more problematic than we were taught in school. But the other thing, you know, if you say that we are headed towards stagflation and stagflation was kind of a, a catalyst for the destruction of a, a former um you know, imperfect but extant uh, unity among workers and and power among workers, as you say, a, a third of people uh, represented by unions. It would seem like now we have uh, two, uh, like maybe we have a clash, right? Because if we do have coming stagflation, we also have a very interesting and and possibly significant. Uh, movement toward unionization in this country, and it could be that we're about to watch something. Uh, really important and interesting play out as we have the, you know, a, a resurgence and an interest in unionization and the understanding of, you know, how important uh, uh, essential workers are and this, uh, you know, historic precedent to look back to. And I wonder what you would what you would make of, of you know, these two movements kind of clashing, clashing together at the same time. Yeah, I, I hope I hope that we see a revitalization of the uh, organized labor movement. Uh, there are some significant challenges and essentially we're starting all over from scratch. We're, we're pretty much, uh, the, the labor unions are pretty much where they were in 1933, uh, 1932 anyway. Uh, and so we're starting over from scratch and there are some significant challenges which include, include of course, this sort of tribalization, you know, all workers getting on the same page uh, and also just the, the, the you know, um, capital has organized over the last 50 years. And so, we're, you know, we're up against something very real, very dynamic, very powerful. Uh, but, you know, probably we're going to see that, that effort. I'll say this, you know, nothing in the past was ever perfect. Like, there's no time in history where everything was perfect. Uh, and, and barely even good. I think even we, I can make an argument that the work winning class were back in 1973. I can make that argument. But it was in dribs and drafts. It was sort of, you know, battle by battle, block by block, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing that's important, I think, and, and this is, I think, a cultural thing um, that, that we don't really have inculcated in our society right now. We did, but I don't think it's there now. And it's the idea that whatever you get, you're going to have to fight for it, right? Like this yeah. idea that, that there's no 
uh, there's no progress without that struggle, without that fight, without that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the idea I think we have to get back to. We're a long ways from that, but I think if we do that, at least it gives us a fighting chance, or as they say in, in the boxing uh, you know, field, uh, it gives us a, a, a puncher's chance of, yeah. of, of winning, whatever winning looks like these days. No, I think that is really important. And I think for a, you know, a lot of people, especially sort of middle-class white Americans grew up without, without really having to fight for much on more than a personal and sort of interpersonal level. And now suddenly the fight you're taking on is with a, you know, ca- capital that is maybe ha- has unprecedented power and control. And it's very it's sort of demoralizing if for a lot of people that's your first fight. Um, but I think maybe we should take some right. take some right. hope in the fact that, like, there are populations in this country who know what it is like to to fight back against, uh, you know, what seem like really long odds. And so maybe there are some historical lessons there to draw on. But, yeah, it's for for for. For a segment of the population, it's a rude awakening. Yes, yes, very much so. That's exactly right. I wanted to also just get your thoughts on this um, Washington Post. It's an editorial today kind of marking the the million deaths of COVID and and saying it didn't have to happen and it shouldn't happen again. And I I find it to be, uh, I I think it's offensive is maybe not too strong a, a way to describe it. The crux of the article And what upsets me so much are these words from the editorial board. They say the United States suffered more deaths per capita than any other major than the other major Western democracies. It was not supposed to be this way. The October 2019 Global Health Security Index rated the United States as the most prepared nation in the world for a pandemic. Yet when one happened, the U.S. response was abysmal with patients waiting in ambulances parked outside overflowing hospitals and healthcare workers in New York City donning garbage bags for protection. It asks, how could this happen? And then says a major unforeseen factor was not health care, but leadership and public confidence. And I just want to say, I mean... Leadership and public confidence are real problems, and I do think we have a, a crisis of both in this country. But to just sort of dismiss health care is incredibly blind to me, John. Uh, well, I don't. I don't think it's blind. I think they're. Uh, I think they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. That's why they keep talking about how well the economy is doing and putting all these sort of issues that we face, putting it on. Trump's shoulders when obvious anyone who uh, has half a brain can see that, you know, there was no noticeable difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration in dealing with the, the COVID pandemic. So, yeah, yeah I, I just, you know, um, I, I have to say, you know, um, <laughs> I know I sound like someone's cranky uncle who's in the attic, you know, who's always complaining about it in my day. Mm. But, you know, um, Journalism, man, it's just there's no reporting anymore. It's all and I realize this was an op ed, but there's still No, this is this an editorial. Yeah, but there's this authoritarianism to it, right? Yeah. Where they, they're telling people like why wouldn't they interview people in mm. the street, those man in the street, you know, interviews that uh are you know, we kind of trivialize but are really very important. Like, what does the average American think about 
the COVID pandemic and why it's killed so many people. Like, what do they think is the response or should have been the response? Yeah. That seems to me like that would be a lot more useful than the Washington Post and their editorial board. You know, mm-hmm. I, well, I think I know half of them, uh, you know, sitting up there in the Washington Post offices telling us what we should do. Yeah. Like, that's just not democratic. You know, it, it is borderline fascist, really. Uh, and so it's just, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like there was a... Um, a, uh, a JFK uh, economist who talked about welfare, mm-hmm. the old system of welfare payments, AFDCA to families with dependent children. Mm-hmm. And he said, he was talking about reforming welfare, and he said, you know, welfare is really the breakdown of all systems, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what, we see, what we're seeing right now in America. We're seeing the breakdown of all systems, all mm-hmm. institutions, and they're they're just failing the people. And you know, hopefully, and hopefully we will start to see that before it's too late. And of course, they, that's exactly what the problem is here. It is those systems that are failing the people. And yet, in this editorial, they are basically blaming they are blaming the right. individuals who didn't get vaccinated. Uh, you know, implicitly for these million deaths, right? So they're saying, oh, people didn't right. get. You know, eighty three percent of the population. Uh, got vaccinated, but uh, less than 20 percent didn't. It's their fault. They wanted to try like hydroxychloroquine or whatever. And and they're sort of laying that at the feet of Donald Trump, which also isn't quite accurate because you could say a lot of terrible things about Donald Trump. And we do day in and day out. But those vaccines were developed under his administration. And unlike a lot of the other uh, sort of MAGA types, Trump has said, get the vaccine. They're good. I got mine. And then I got the booster. And so, again, it is just... To have an editorial that that talks about this death toll and doesn't mention the number of uninsured in this country or how expensive it is to get treatment in this country is, yeah, it's it's malpractice. It's journalistic malpractice. It's, it's, I've I probably said this before on this show, so forgive me, but I'm always reminded of the Fred Hampton quote that we're, we're always left with answers that don't answer, explanations that don't explain, and conclusions that don't conclude. I just, I just feel like that's sort of uh, like the, 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 you know, the quote that we can sort of return to almost every day to sort of help us figure out what's going on in this country. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, their, their prescription for future success is early warning and rapid response, advanced biomedical platforms to develop vaccines and therapeutics and a rededication to building public faith. And again, hey, what if what if not so many Americans had diabetes? You know, what right, what, right, what is right, it? Where's right. anything about preventative health care, anything about being in better health in the first place? And again, mm-hmm. you just see like there's a there's a blind spot. Would people have more faith in the system if they understood that it wasn't just for profit? Like, yes. like these, they don't seem to want to connect the dots. I mean, people don't have faith in the system. I, I'm not sure. I had an incredible amount of faith in the system. I, I yeah. did get vaccinated. And I got the booster, mm-hmm. but I certainly was hesitant at first. I don't trust modern medicine, which I know is a for-profit system. Shouldn't mm-hmm. there be some space that's just for the public and not just for private capital? Yeah, to say we have created this crisis by creating a healthcare system that actively works to deny people care and yet charge them as much as possible for what they do give them. Like, you know, there's you can't you can't step away from that and isolate that and say, oh, no, no, that doesn't have anything to do with why why people don't trust the medical system. Yeah. And, you know, this is why they make more money, the sicker we are. I mean, that that's just an inviolable we can't get away from that. It's, irreducible. it's an irreducible truth about our healthcare system. Yeah, and also they make money by doing exactly the same things that the Post uh, prescribes here, by uh, completely ignoring and making preventative care very difficult and only intervening at the last minute with the most, uh, you know, expensive and invasive procedures. Exactly what a, right. Exactly what a right. 
John, we got to let you go in just a second, but I thought you might want to uh, remark on the announcement yesterday from the DOJ that they have put together another $40 million for uh, mostly it is police training. And some of these training programs, you could say, are positive. You know, there's some de-escalation training in there. There's some anti-bias training in there. But this is Another 40 million going to law enforcement and law enforcement contractors and not to public health or psychiatric care or public transport or, or homelessness or anything else that people were asking for when they asked for the police to be defunded. And so, you know, we, we talked about it after after Joe Biden said fund the police in his uh, State of the Union address. Yeah. But this is maybe yeah. that was the coffin. This is the nail. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, you know, I really just, you know, no one can predict what's going to happen, but I really think the Democrats are facing an existential crisis, right? Uh, and I think these next two elections are really going to, um, really going to sort of put pay to the lie of the Democrats as a party of either the working class in this in this country or uh, for um, racial minorities in this country, right? Like the the the, the idea of funding the police. At the expense of, you know, funding the police and funding soldiers in Ukraine. And yet, you know, as I said before, there are kids in uh, uh, the Bay Area uh, who, who can't get a decent lunch, a decent breakfast. You know, people are dying of COVID and continue to die of COVID at rates that are higher than almost any other country in the world. Um, it's just absurd. I don't I don't understand the Democrats. Well, I don't think they have a strategy, right? Like, I, I think no. they're just they're just bailing water, hoping that something breaks in their favor. But I, I just see disaster for the Democratic Party uh, in the next two elections. And I don't see how they can stop it. No, and it'll it'll be deserved, I think. Uh, that was author yes, John. Oh, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. John, we could talk all day, but we got to let you go now. That was author John Jeter. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you very much, Michelle. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou talking about something we've been uh, I think we've mentioned on the show a few times. And that's this stunt by Texas Governor Greg Abbott mm-hmm. to send migrants by bus to D.C. Yeah. Uncharitably, we'll say I, I think the idea was probably to cause chaos seems to have failed. We're going to talk about what has really happened with a man who has been welcoming and orienting immigrants arriving by bus through Sanctuary DMV. That's Mark Shmueli. Uh, He's a local immigration attorney and the immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Law Section. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So as I mentioned in April, Texas Governor Greg Abbott started busing new immigrants from Texas to D.C. Abbott is up for re-election in November, and this seemed pretty clearly to be part of a political stunt. We'll make you feel our pain. I have to also just say he's talking about the pain of seeing people arriving, seeking asylum, wanting to get work, you know, wanting to try and figure things out in a new country. Doesn't seem that painful to me. Anyway, the program is sort of interesting because it is supposed to be voluntary uh, and cities and counties have to request it, as I understand. 
Meaning, I guess that D.C. has requested the buses come here. I, I am not sure how true that is. But the thing is, it seems to be actually benefiting these migrants. Um, some people who spoke to The New York Times and the Texas Tribune uh, said, hey, we, we're really grateful for the ride. We were trying to get to New York. We're way closer now. It, it, it's very lucky because, you know, th- through the course of our dangerous journey, we were robbed. We didn't have enough money by the time we got here for this trip. Um, and so the, D.C. has not erupted in chaos. And so I wanted to ask you, Mark, uh, to, to first tell us about this program. Is it really voluntary? And, uh, you know, what's your experience been welcoming people here? Well, thanks. And uh, I have to say, when I first started, um, you know, I just come back from a spring break uh, with, uh, with with my son, and I uh, and it was happening in D.C., and I got immediately involved, and that was about two weeks ago, and I learned uh, a, a lot from both the people coming and the people that were here. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one, no, it, it is, it's, it's voluntary in Texas, and the, the town essentially, is, and it's really only being done in smaller populated areas of, of the border. Mm-hmm. Governor, as I understand it, is sort of sending somebody out where people are released from detention, kind of in the middle of a very rural area, and saying, come to D.C. And what's different is people don't have people here. Uh, necessarily, mm-hmm. So they're coming. Now, D.C. didn't request it. There were, nobody requested it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, par- part of it is just to sort of you know move them against uh, CBP's... Because, um, you know, the Border Patrol, when they release somebody... They have their way to keep tags on them where they are. And then all of a sudden they're in D.C. But I think they're one step ahead of him on that and that they know where they're going so they can transfer all the reporting and and all of that here. Mm -hmm. Also, um, you know, uh, uh, I think you're right. It's it's he was sort of I'm unleashing this plague when in reality, uh, you know, first of all, I've been to the border. Texans don't view it the way they do. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I view Texas as really being held hostage by this, mm-hmm. like in a lot of states. And, um, and and so, you know, but in fairness, I think what, what he's saying, as I would interpret it, is the border isn't just us. And you know what? He's right. Yeah. This is a problem, and this is a problem, as they say, mm-hmm. a situation in the United States of people coming here because it's not optimal for people. Nobody wants to leave their their wife, their kids, come over here, uh, bring their children. Uh, it's not safe. Right. The whole idea of the journey, but the conditions. I mean, for example, many people are coming out of Venezuela. Well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, which country is, you know, the United States helping to economically choke right now? Yeah, and yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of people are coming from, uh, you know, African countries. There's been six coups in, in, in Africa this year that nobody talks about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so so really you can trace the violence. You can trace the effects of climate change. People are coming from Nepal and Bangladesh and places where they're just you, you can trace the pressures that uh, get people to come here. And you can also mm-hmm. see that, uh, you know, like you're saying, p- people are not coming here. Uh, I mean, what, what I think he envisioned was uh, a, a huge homeless population of immigrants on the streets of D.C. Right. For his point, And it's the opposite. Yeah. And I think that I think that is a really good point that, you know, if, if we are going to see a huge number of migrants coming to the border, it shouldn't necessarily be the popular the responsibility of only those border communities 
to take care of all of these people because that is difficult. It's difficult. It's a strain and it's not ideal for for anyone. And so, yeah, it's helping helping sort of distribute this so the resources can be distributed and people can be handled in, in smaller groups in more humane ways seems to make a lot of sense, whether that was what Abbott intended or not. Uh, you mentioned uh, encountering people coming from Venezuela. What, where else have you met people who are where else have people been coming from who you've met? What what have their experiences been like? What have you heard from them? Well, people are coming from Venezuela. People are coming from Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the the uh, I mean, we know what Brazil under Bolsonaro has become. People are coming from the Amazon region because of the uh, uh, you know, incredible uh, economic destruction caused by uh, you know this this exceptionally corrupt. Uh, uh, government mm-hmm. with the insane deforestation uh, that's just, uh, you know, forced people into economic, uh, you know, violence, mm-hmm. et cetera. And people, as I've seen Brazilians, I've seen Colombians, I've seen uh, Venezuelans, there's been uh, uh, Angolans, uh, you know, there's a large Angolan population in Portland, Maine. So a lot of Angolans, um, I, you know, I've briefly seen, but they go straight to Maine. Mm-hmm. Now, Maine is kind of full, or they've gone, you know, people have gone to other other places, mostly, uh, you know, I've been uh, working with people um, uh, from South and uh, America more, but no, very, they're not Mexican Central Americans for the most part. Hmm. And uh, I want to ask also uh, about, you know, your sense of whether the border is prepared for the end of Title 42, right? Title 42 is a policy that allowed the U.S. to expel uh, people who they wouldn't otherwise be allowed to expel under uh, because of a public health emergency. We have already seen, you know, an uptick in migration and there is every expectation that, you know, that will only increase after Title 42 expires. Do you think we're prepared for it? Which is not to say that we should treat, again, treat migrants as a problem or a plague, but simply have some thought for their well-being and the well-being of the communities that they enter. Well, um, I mean, putting it this way, the CDC, uh, you know, has thought so for now, you know, a couple of months, um, you know, there's a court block. The CDC thought so in 2020 when they enacted this. Mm-hmm. The, the director of the CDC en- enacted this and wrote this memorandum um, against his own advice because, uh, you know, it, it came straight from the administration at the, because there was just... Um, uh, there, there were ways to, uh, to, to, to alleviate any public health issues like in any other detention mm-hmm. center. And there's, and, and, and I can tell you, there has never been a care for those who work in detention centers mm-hmm. and those who, uh, communities by, uh, uh, you know, ice before. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the public health has never been, you know, something that's been uh, credible in mm-hmm. medical community in, in either administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so are, are people, is the United States able to process people the way they were before um, for asylum? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. I mean, one of the, um, uh, uh, I mean, they've, you know, they've hired a ton of new immigration judges. You know, ICE has never lacked for funding, mm-hmm. uh, nor is the Border Patrol. So, yes, they certainly have the resources uh, if they if they wanted to. Um, 
And, you know, and also whether they did or didn't, this mechanism is on the one hand continuing to say that it's a public health issue for these migrants to come into the United States and they can't be tested and they can't be controlled. Mm -hmm. While at the same time saying that people on airplanes and trains and buses packed in with each other are fine without masks. Right. I mean, the idea that this was about public health is really is very silly. And it's, you know, it's been pointed out that, you you know, the, the U.S. requires certain vaccinations and whatever else. But OK, then you can just require that. Right. Or you can maybe even offer them on the border if you want. It just seems it, the idea that. uh yeah, we we are going to maintain this draconian border policy for the sake of public health, but we're not going to maintain any other policy at all or even fund treatment and testing just really makes it a, a joke, Mark. And, and and the United States doesn't require uh, I mean, if if a Democratic uh, you know Congress or these were Democratic governors with that concern, maybe. But last I checked, uh, Greg Abbott and none of these other governors uh, re- Required a vaccine and pushed that there is be no vaccine mandate, mm-hmm. and the, and that includes uh, the border patrol officers and ICE officers. So they're not requiring it. So, mm-hmm. so um, isn't you know the, the it's interesting that they deny the same fundamental freedom. Mm-hmm. They take a Bible away from somebody if this is their fundamental freedom. But the truth is that we know that people in, from poor countries do not shun public health. Because they, it's not a, it's it, it's not some. This is a uniquely, uh, you know, uh, a, a Western kind of, in a sense, privileged thing. Uh, even if poorer people in the United States adopt the no vaccine stance, it mm-hmm. is something that people in, you know, uh, these countries cannot afford to. I mean, they they, they just don't do it. It's mm-hmm. not hardly any culture of any of these countries to deny the vaccine. And and people that I talk to have been vaccinated and would take a, a, a vaccine. It's just, it's, it's mm-hmm. natural. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you uh, to come back to some of the, you know, the personal stories from people you've encountered? Like what, what are these migrants in need of when they arrive in DC? Uh, how smooth has the process been to sort of help them get oriented, get their needs met, figure out how they're, you know, how to take the next step in the U.S. legal process. Uh, what, what are you learning about immigration from the, the needs of the people that you encounter? First of all, I can say that, you know, we as immigration lawyers, unless we do this, and this is Muslim right, we don't really know. And mm-hmm. that's why I've been to the border to volunteer to see and why I'm doing this. Because mm-hmm. I can kind of really get it firsthand. The buses are there. There's people to greet them. They are taken to, uh, you know, a, a space where they are given, you know, their first meal. The buses typically come early in the morning. There's food. I mean, I mean, I have packed up, uh, you know, underwear and clothes for people. So in different packages, so it's there. So I can you know, viscerally see that. And then there are different places where there is there are volunteers that that have. Uh, you know, housing, transportation, mm-hmm. people have their, people may have a place to go. Uh, people may not. And then there might be, uh, um, you know, there's different funds for different things. Um, and so people are uh, taken, taken care of as far as, um, you know, housing apartments, just orienting them to what's out there. But man, people are, you know, catching on quickly and there's a lot of great support. And, you know, I, I just as I said, I did send the, uh, you know, the, the, the link uh, for people. It said Sanctuary DMV is the organization and, mm-hmm. you know, volunteer uh, and people can donate and there's lots and it's just amazing how many 
new volunteers come every day. It's 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 an amazing community. Mm-hmm. Do you expect that uh, Abbott is going to continue this busing program and that maybe other states are going to join in? Or do you think its efficacy is a political stunt or lack of efficacy, I guess, uh, is going to cause them to wind it up? Well, one thing we've learned about um, and, you know, I know you were talking about the Democrats last time. Mm-hmm. One thing we've learned from the Republicans and this particular brand of Republican is um, they don't uh, take defeat uh, easily. And so they double down and they continue. And oftentimes that's how they uh, have succeeded. And so we all know that it's they're going to continue these buses and they're going to continue them. And if they need to send four, they'll send four. And mm-hmm. so the pressure will be on. And so one of the things that it could, you know, needs to not happen, which is people, I don't like the stories that are out there where they say, well, this is, you know, everybody's joke on him and all of that. Because mm-hmm. That's never true. And we've learned that in all of our uh, so many issues. Mm-hmm. People need to understand he'll send six buses. He'll send 10. Somebody will throw money at that. And so and now the governor of Arizona is also they're sending them from Arizona, mm-hmm. maybe to other parts. And so um, that is so I don't expect them to quit because that's not their style. And, you know, there's something in a sense, you know, for the for for righteous causes. But, mm-hmm. there's, uh, you know, there's something to be um, to, to be said for that. But it's pretty I mean, predictably, um, you know, I mean, it could it could turn out. I mean, he did stop the thing where he was stopping trucks coming across. Uh, right. Yeah. I, stopping them for inspections, requiring extra inspections or something. Right. Right, right, and 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 when there was no food on the grocery, uh, you know, shelves, and and he was being attacked by corporate Texas, um, mm-hmm. backed off. So who knows? I mean, he, you know, they may, um, as you know, they may end up realizing that they just can't do it, and they uh, miss it, you know, uh, underestimated. Mm-hmm. Don't expect that to happen before. Right, Mark Schmelly. We're running out of time, but I, I really appreciate it. That was Mark Schmelly. He's a local immigration attorney. He's been volunteering with Sanctuary DMV, and so if you want to go and help, you can look at sanctuarydmv.org to go find out how you can volunteer too. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Take care. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Weddy. The Wall Street Journal and the New York Post are reporting this morning that Disinformation Governance Board Chairman Nina Jankowitz in 2016 pushed the now-debunked claim that Donald Trump had ties to the Kremlin-linked Alpha Bank. Those were the same allegations made by Michael Sussman, the Clinton campaign lawyer who's charged with felony lying to the FBI. Jankowitz more recently tweeted a false allegation by 51 former senior CIA officials that Hunter Biden's laptop was part of a Russian intelligence operation. In other news, a volume of official reports declassified by the German government reveals that German Chancellor Helmut Kohl in 1991 privately opposed both Ukrainian independence and NATO's eastward expansion, according to Der Spiegel. One report says that Kohl believed that a breakup of the Soviet Union would be, quote, a disaster. 
and said that anybody who supported it was, quote, an ass, unquote. That's funny. Yeah, I thought so, too. That's why I put it in. I thought it added some flavor. Yeah. Cole believed that any country that had been a part of the Soviet Union should remain neutral in perpetuity, a position that was not shared by Washington. In even more other news, the far-right news network OAN, the One America Network, settled a defamation lawsuit and had to read a disclaimer on the air. We'll tell you about that. It was 30 seconds long. And Capitol Hill staff members are in the process of forming a union. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week offered her support, or her permission, depending on your point of view. We're joined by Jim Cavanaugh. He's the editor of thepolemicist.net. Welcome back, Jim. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. It's always fun, Jim. Let's start with Nina Jankowitz. It seems to me that this disinformation government governance board has just disaster written all over it. First, even the idea that the government should be the arbiter of truth of what the American people can read or can watch is just wrong, wrong, wrong. Second, this stupid board doesn't even have a mission statement. Like, why would you even stand up a governmental organization that doesn't even have a mission statement yet? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas admitted last week in a Senate committee hearing that uh, that there was no mission statement. They just hadn't gotten that far yet. Uh, Now, journalists are going back through Nina Jankowitz's social media history, and they're finding evidence that she was responsible for spreading disinformation. Give me your thoughts first on this disinformation governance board. And second, where you think it's going? Well, you know, it, it is kind of disgraceful. <laughs> I mean, it is the Ministry of Truth, and and the 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 grilling that uh, Rand Paul gave to Mayorkas uh, was really something. You know, where he said, "What is this disinformation? They don't know what dis. They can't have a mission statement because they make they can't define disinformation in some way that's." has any kind of notion of objective fairness mm-hmm. or objective truth to it at all. You know, it's, it's a deliberately amorphous concept that doesn't really mean anything. And, you know, the government is putting itself, but, you know, it, it's kind of trying to say it's not really putting itself in that position, but to suggest that it is. And this is the Department of Homeland Security. This is the <laughs> repressive apparatus of the state. It's not the Department of Education telling you, you know, what, what, the, what the truth is or what it isn't. It's, this is the police organization saying how they're going to police thinking in the United States. It's a it's a it's a kind of a epistemological enforcement that's bizarre and it doesn't really work. They can't explain themselves because it's incoherent. So, you know, Rand Paul, he got Rand Paul to say who's the biggest provider of disinformation in the world. It's the United States government. And to go over the various lies that the government previously has put forward disinformation and lies to get us into war, which is what they're doing again. And it's incontrovertible that the government has lied us into war since, you know, remember the main. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is something which is, you know, transparently phony and has no no foundation in any kind of epistemological fact or any kind of epistemological foundation. And it's disgraceful that we're even considering it. One of the things that was so funny to me as I was watching that that Senate uh, hearing was how easily Rand Paul and and others, Mitt Romney was another one, was able to push Mayorkas around. 
you know, they started off with with him saying that, you know, this is we're standing up this board because we have to uh, counter what the Russians are doing. And the Russians are these masters of disinformation. And then when they pressed him on it, like, what exactly are you talking about? What exactly are the Russians doing? Well, we don't really have any proof that the Russians are doing any anything. And then 15 minutes later. He just sort of blurts out, well, um, this disinformation government governance board, it's going to help us to combat human trafficking. Like human trafficking. What are you talking about? I know. I mean, they're just fishing around for <laughs> justifications. And, and what is it? You know, they could. Is it a board or is it just this woman that they you know, the high school uh, they brought in from the high school play to <laughs> to be there to be the voice of disinformation management. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and they don't, he can't explain it and yeah. in any way that that's, that rings as true or as something we want to see with the American people. And it's just kind of crazy, but they're living in a, in a boat. You see the kind of bubble they're in. Yeah. They thought they could just do this. And a lot of people would accept it and think it was okay because they've been doing this story of disinformation and fake news and Russian news and rush, you know, for four or five years. And yes. they think they're still in that bubble. Well, yes. Can I mention something on that topic? You know, we had a big story yesterday in The Wall Street Journal about uh, how the Steele dossier came about. And one of the uh, you know major aspects of it is Christopher Dolan, who was or sorry, uh, Charles Dolan who was the source of a bunch of this information that ended up being in the document, just immediately writing and saying, I hope I hope this is exposed as fake news. Like, this isn't, I'm going to check to see if they know who produced this. Well, he didn't know it was him it just was sitting him. around shooting the <laughs> crap with his friends at bar tables, you know? And yet th- we were flogged with this for four years. To, you know, I mean, and I think it probably played a not too insignificant role in, in getting people to get fired up enough to get involved in Ukraine to the extent that we do. You know, yeah. like people are really people are dying as a result of yeah. this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I, I want to ask you about uh, th- this letter that, that I've mentioned a couple of times. It was signed by 51 former CIA officials. They signed this open letter that they sent to Politico in which they said that the Hunter Biden laptop was was a Russian intelligence operation. They said it had all the earmarks of a Russian intelligence operation, that it couldn't have been uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. It was obviously planted by the Russians. Nina Jankowicz tweeted that letter. And these are important people who should know better. These are people like John Brennan, Michael Morell. John McLaughlin, senior people, serious people. They'd all been either director or acting director of the CIA. They all made fools of themselves and they were responsible for spreading disinformation. Is it even possible then with that in mind to prevent the spread of disinformation? Isn't that just the cost of living in a free society? Well, sure. I mean, disinformation is itself. It it really means interpretation of facts, because it's not saying lying or not lying. You know, that's fair. You can come out and say someone said X and that's not true. And I'll tell you why. But this is really a matter of of interpreting a set of facts to support a certain narrative. And that you can't you, you can't legislate away or create a government board away to prevent different narratives from being constructed out of the same set of facts. Yeah. So that's not going to stop. And to try to do that is ridiculous and repressive and authoritarian it is Orwellian in, 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 in the exact sense of the word. 
but you know, this thing with these 51 intelligence, this is the same damn thing. How can you, John, you know, listen, they did not say it was Russian. This They said right. it had all the earmarks. All the earmarks. Russian. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what they do. You know, yeah. I hear people yeah. say this all the time. Yeah, good Once point. it gets exposed, people will say, well, they never really said it was. Right. But in fact, you know, on the fifth page, they said, well, we're not saying it is, but we're saying it has all the earmarks of it. And then the media then treats it as if it's a definitive statement and mm -hmm. a dispositive statement about that. And that's the way it gets – that's the disinformation right there, that the narrative gets presented as if we know this is a Russian disinformation campaign. And that's the way everybody treats it in the media and the culture for four or five years mm -hmm. until there's a story that says, oh, well, you know, guess what? It wasn't – so this is what happened with the Steele dossier. This is what happened with this. You know, this is what happened with everything in Russiagate. And it was with the connivance of the – National Security State yes. and the FBI and the yes. CIA and, you know, the Steele dossier and the Alpha Bankster, they knew the Steele dossier was phony. They knew Denchenko was, you know, in, in January of 2017, they knew he was lying to them. He admitted it to them. So we're not <laughs> lying, but he said, you know, this is I don't really know whether this is true or not. So this was known, but they continued, the FBI continued to push Oh, maybe it is. We we got to pursue it. It could be important, you know. Mm -hmm. So this yeah. is stuff that was the F, the intelligence agencies were behind and were pushing a story that upended American politics for five years and deliberately was trying to push the the Trump administration and did in the direction of first of all what we see now was supporting Ukraine in a certain way and in all kinds of ways that they were they were trying to influence and uh, steer American politics. And again, I feel like, sorry, I'm jumping in here. No, but no, please I do. I feel like the problem, again, is not necessarily like uh, d investigating, right? Looking into these things that you've heard. The problem, again, is the treatment by the press, right? The treatment by the press of like then trying to get ahead of that investigation, find it out themselves and treating with absolutely no skepticism or uh, concern the, the actions of our government, right? And so this sort of fingerprints of whatever uh, we've just gotten used to accepting that as an explanation for all of the remember what, like in the last couple of years where it felt like every week there was some kind of major hack and oh, it would yeah. always be uh, North Korean North fingerprints Korea. on this one, yep. Chinese fingerprints on this one. Or, Never. or, or, or an organization connected to the Kremlin. Right. I used to love that. One. Right. Like, and what does that mean? You know, there's there's either no. Uh, investigation of, of what that actually means and the huge gray area it represents, or uh, there is, but it is dropped on paragraph 15 after you, you know, mm -hmm. you would correctly assume, I think if you were a, a newspaper reader that, oh, okay, it's pretty certain that this is, this is these guys, you know, you have to really dig for the nugget of, of truth in there. Yeah. I like the one about Russian bounties on American soldiers. Now yes. oh, we know that yeah. Americans are helping to kill Russian generals, <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, so far as that's true. But yeah, this is the point, and it's done with a lot of things. Okay, the 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 story and the maybe facts that the dominant narrative wants, the evidence that comes forward that may or may not be true, but points in the direction the dominant narrative wants, is treated as dispositive evidence and proof. But if you want to say something counter to it, oh, you got to show me absolute proof. Or I won't even report it. I won't even report the evidence. And mm -hmm. you can't have ever even been mm -hmm. on the same city block as anybody who might have a conflict of interest, mm -hmm. whereas we will happily accept editorials exactly. day in and day out by the CEOs of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin about how actually the only the only way to peace is more war. Isn't that the truth? I have to ask you, too, about uh, these reports of 
of Joe Biden's anger over national security leaks. You know, it's funny. You can go back 50 years and find exactly the same articles and just change the name of the president because every president flips out over national security leaks. So what we're hearing most recently is these reports that the U.S. has been, for example, providing intelligence to the Ukrainians that have allowed the Ukrainians to kill Russian generals. Uh, The number of Russian generals apparently has been, quote, astounding, right? Amazing that they've killed all these generals. We don't have any idea if that's true. But, But people in the in the intelligence community or the national security community are taking uh, credit for it. What's the, what this sounds like to me is just a brag. Somebody's bragging to a reporter. This, this one doesn't sound like, like a purposeful leak where they did it to try to swing public opinion or something. So my question to you is knowing that this happens constantly, that it happens president with president after president after president. Does it matter? Does it really matter if somebody calls the New York Times and says, oh, my God, we gave intelligence to the Ukrainians and they killed 14 generals because of our intelligence? OK, good for you guys. Does that really matter? Well, it's, it's dangerous in this in a circumstance of war where it's it's saying that, you know, we are fighting on the side of Ukraine. And, and but, you know, the Russians know that. Yeah, the Russians <laughs> You're not know telling that. anything sure. to the Russians here. <laughs> uh, but what and that's why I think we got to be very careful about the, that, that leak and the leak about the Moskva, because it could be that, you know, because I the Russians have reported that I think two generals were killed. And, and you know, now this this report is kind of implying or saying that we've killed a whole score of them or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I think there's, as you say, there's a lot of bragging going on here, but there's also, uh, you know, a, 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 maybe an attempt to provoke the Russians into doing something that will, you know, people who want to get us more directly involved in the war. So we have to be very careful about uh, good these point. Leaks. Good These point. Leaks. Yeah, it, yeah. You know what? You're, that, let's let's repeat that, too, because there are people in the White House, in the intelligence community, the Pentagon, even Capitol Hill that want us to take a boots on the ground position in this war. We hear it every day or no fly zone, no fly know, zone, definitive weapons. I mean, it's it's a very dangerous situation. You know, they were out there, the congressional, the Democratic congressional delegation. Mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham today or yesterday said, we this, we got to win this. We're in this to win it. There's no no exit. And it's very, very dangerous. So you do have people who might leak in a, in a way that would, uh, they hope, you know, provoke the Russians to act in a certain way that would get us more, more involved. So we do have to be careful about any leaks from the intelligence agencies and who's doing it. And, you know, as you say, look, it's a question of leaks in general. Now, this is every president hates the leakers and looking for them, you know, from mixing on down. And uh, so, you know, that's oh, that's not going to stop. And most of the time you end up finding out it's someone in the presidential administration. Yeah, usually it is. I remember a friend of mine um, in the White House in the very early days of the Obama administration said that. It was the only time he had ever seen Obama flip out and screaming and swearing, yelling at Joe Biden about these leaks. And um, and my friend described it as a as a Nixonian obsession with leaks. That was in the Obama administration. Well, we've seen 
uh, Donald Trump flip out over leaks. Now we get these reports that Joe Biden is flipping out over leaks. They don't flip out when the leak makes them look good. Like, oh, by the way, we created the Stuxnet virus. Don't tell anybody. Right. And then it's on the front page of the New York Times. And then people are like, oh, my God, the Americans are geniuses. They created the Stuxnet oh, Joe, Joe Biden insists on being in all these briefings and he asks pointed questions. Right. He's, he's really hands on. He doesn't want you to know it. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Jim, uh, let's talk about these declassified German reports. I, I have to say I, I'm fascinated with this. The Germans do uh, what the Americans do, what most countries do. They have a mandatory declassification law. And so after something has been um, classified for 30 years, it undergoes mandatory review. And unless there's a compelling reason to keep it classified, it's declassified. Nobody ever pays any attention to this stuff unless it's, you know, about UFOs, let's say, or something that has broad public interest. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I was asked at the CIA to review 30-year-old information on whatever issue I happen to be working on, just to make sure that there were no sources or methods uh, mentioned, and then you just put a stamp on it, and it's declassified. Well, now we we see these declassified German uh, diplomatic and national security reports. Helmut Kohl was the chancellor of Germany for 16 years. For those of our listeners who don't remember him, he was immensely popular, not just in Germany, but in the United States as well. He was a serious international statesman. I think he just died. He was in his 90s. Um, He thought that eastward expansion of NATO was a mistake. He opposed the breakup of the Soviet Union, not because he was a communist or pro-Soviet. He was actually a conservative. But he said that if the Soviet Union were to break up, which was bad for regional stability, at least those countries that had been members of the Soviet Union or parts of the Soviet Union should remain neutral. I would argue that that view was was prescient, but certainly the U.S. government would say that he was wrong. How do you think history will look at his analysis? Oh, it's not just he, you know, he joins. He was, as you say, you know, he's a conservative guy. I'm not a fan of his and many other conservative people, who, although they were serious statesmen, you know, from George Kennan to Henry Kissinger, yeah. to even, to, you know, people like John Mearsheimer and, and Stephen yeah. Cohen, and, and even the present CIA director, William Bloom, you know, who said all Oh, that said, was Freudian. If you, if you play <laughs> this game with the Soviet Union, with Russia, if you play NATO expansion, if you bring, try to bring Ukraine into NATO, or it, it's going to be a disaster, and it's going to be a disaster for Ukraine. You're playing games with Ukraine. And uh, so he was one of these people. And it's very, very glad this came out because it it also affirms, reaffirms the fact that there was a pledge made, even if it was verbal, about no eastward expansion of NATO. And that statesmen, conservative statesmen, anti-communist statesmen who understood the workings of the world were saying this is a disaster. You're being, I mean, look at the language you, you said, you're being an ass if you do this. You're going to create a whole set of problems, including what he said, the reemergence of what he called what was a nationalist authoritarianism, yes. i.e. fascism from yes. World War II. Because that's what a lot of the right-wing elements in the Eastern European countries were. They were defeated right-wing elements from World War II, and we're seeing this resurgence of this. It's extremely, you know, people have to read these. And again, this is one of these things that just gets 
dismissed and not even seen by most people. Most people have no idea that this kind of stuff, this this uh, debate ha- happened within the American foreign policy apparatus. Yes. And overwhelmingly, the experts within that apparatus were saying th- things like this. Uh, so it's, you know, this is what's the context uh, and the background, the historical background that's missing. And, and, and we're also missing people of the caliber of, you know, knowledgeable, historically knowledgeable people running American foreign policy. I hate to say it, but who are these guys? You know, they're not. And you have, on the other hand, someone like Lavrov, who is a serious statesman. Oh yeah. uh, And has been around for generations. As crazy as that sounds. I think you're exactly right. I'll say one one more thing. Please do. Uh, uh, the, uh, 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 opening, opening files that have been around for 30 years routinely. The one thing they're not doing on, on that, on other is a JFK assassination, 60 years. Yeah. And they still can't open all the files on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, just as an aside of Skyhorse, which is my, my primary publisher, they've, they've published, I don't know, five, five or six of my books. Uh, they asked me if I would write an introduction to the to the most recent tranche of Kennedy documents. Uh, there were ten thousand pages of documents. They told me to to find the two hundred and fifty or three hundred uh, most important uh, pages and uh, write an introduction. And so I took the time. I went through ten thousand pages, and it was ten thousand pages of nothing. Of Oh, this guy walked into the Russian embassy in Mexico City, and then he walked out two hours later. We don't know what he was doing in there. Nothing about the bushes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff like that. There was literally nothing that was new, and it was because they decided to withhold documents. Withhold anything important. Yeah, Yeah. they withheld everything that was important, despite the fact that Congress, not just we not just do we have a mandatory declassification law that they've ignored, but Congress, Congress legislated the release of the remainder of this uh, of this information. Yeah, they just ignore it. They just don't do it. Okay, I'm going to move on to there was something else I wanted to say. Now I can't remember what it is. But anyway, let's talk about OAN for a minute. Um, the One America Network, one of these far right news networks with Newsmax, uh, they were forced to broadcast a 30 second statement yesterday saying that there was no voter fraud in the 2020 election and that Georgia election workers did not engage in fraud. Now, the reason why they had to do this is because they went on and said not only was there voter fraud, but these two women and they named their names. These two women in Georgia, they're the ones who engaged in voter fraud and they stole the election from Donald Trump. Well, as you might imagine, these two women who were utterly innocent of anything immediately began receiving death threats. Wackos showed up at their homes, threatened them there. Their kids were threatened. It was just a nightmare. Gateway Pundit. And I know that Gateway Pundit's uh, founder is a regular on one of the other shows on this network. Nice guy, but it's also seen as an extremist site. Gateway Pundit repeated these these false allegations. So these two Georgia um, election workers sued OAN and Gateway Pundit. They settled with OAN. I don't know how much money they got, but OAN had to do this announcement that essentially said, we made the whole thing up. We didn't have any evidence at all that these women engaged in in voter fraud. So 
the suit against Gateway Pundit is pending. They also sued Rudy Giuliani because he went on OAN and repeated, you know, the circular reporting that these women had done something. Does any of this matter, Jim? I mean, they, they only have like 35,000 viewers uh, at any given time. Nobody watches this network. So does it matter or will the Trump people just believe what they want to believe no matter what the evidence is to the contrary? Uh, well, you know, now we're getting into in this particular instance, you know, I don't didn't follow the particular uh, lawsuit. But if these people were named, individuals were named in a defamatory way, good for them. You know, they, <laughs> they're going to they're going to sue. They should sue and they should win if, if lies were told about them. Uh, but the larger issue here about the election fraud is I'm going to tell you, I don't know the answer to it. Donald Trump lost the election by 42,000 votes in three states. <laughs> you know, that's the electoral co- That's that's you know, he lost, he lost the election by some million votes. But Hillary, so Hillary Clinton, apples to apples. Donald Trump lost the election by 42,000 votes yeah. in three states. The American electoral system is terrible. And it is, and yes. I've written about this since 2012. It is designed to enable fraud in in a hundred ways. So I did not look very, in, at, at, very carefully at any of the, uh, uh, I don't know whether Georgia was one of those three states, actually, Arizona and Wisconsin and something else, but uh, maybe Georgia was one. But the, uh, the American electoral system is is designed to enable fraud. And so you're going to have in every election, as you have had in every election, from primaries to presidential elections, charges of fraud, mismanagement, uh, mistaken fraud or deliberate fraud, and they're going to be almost impossible to, to litigate or to find the dispositive answer to after the fact, because they won't fix the electoral system. So- what I don't like coming out of this is the idea that's been promoted that any questioning of the electoral system now and of the possibility of fraud is crazy, is nuts. That's anti-democratic. I mean, it's not at all. We have a terrible electoral system that is, you know, I, I, frankly, I don't know whether Donald Trump's 42, whether those ginning up 42,000 votes in three states is a piece of cake, a hundred ways. So you're going to be able to find ways, you know, in uh, little bits of evidence that might point to that or point away from that. And unless you go into it and study it carefully, you're not going to find the answer to it. We, we need to reform the American electoral system. We need no proprietary code in electronic voting mm-hmm. machines. Electronic mm-hmm. voting machines are a disaster. The vote by mail system and the drop off box system is is and the, the uh, you know default vote by, by by mail system. If you don't think that's the vector of the biggest, a very big potential vector of fraud, you're kidding yourself. Every election monitoring the Carter Baker election uh, report about that. This is the biggest dangerous thing. What's happened in 2000? The idea of ballot harvesting. This is all. Dangerous stuff. So we can't just dismiss the idea that fraud was possible. Fraud was possible. Yeah. It's possible as as people as as the Democrats argued in 2004 correctly, and 2000 correctly. So, uh, you know, good for anybody who's who's uh, defamed and named and shamed, uh, you know, incorrectly and dishonestly to bring this suit. But the larger picture of what happened in the 2000. 20 election 
or the 2004 election or the 2016 election is really we have to do something about the election. And what's been happening since is that the idea of now being worried about that, mm -hmm. saying that we have an electoral system that's designed to promote forward is being dismissed and derided. And that's a mistake. One uh, final uh, question. I'm going to try to make this as quick as I as I can. We're pretty well out of time. Capitol Hill staff members are mostly very young. They're notoriously poorly paid. They have to live in group houses and survive on ramen noodles. They stay for a year or two in these jobs and then they move on to something else. Well, now they're forming a union and they're going to want a, a higher standard of living. Last week, Nancy Pelosi endorsed the union. Uh which uh, shouldn't have been a surprise. It was reported as a surprise. She also endorsed a minimum salary of $45,000 for all Hill staffers. That's pretty dramatic. Is that going to change anything? Is it going to lead to a higher quality of, um, of staffers on Capitol Hill? Currently, lobbyists write almost all the legislation. Do you see that, uh, that changing? Well, I don't think that they're going to displace the lobbyists in writing information, in writing, writing laws, because... Uh, Lobbyists are paid a lot more than $45,000 and they have a lot more access and they represent millions and millions of dollars of, of campaign contributions. Indeed. So, you know, that is not going to solve that problem in any way, shape or form and giving them, you know, good for them. Let them get have a union and have decent salaries and working conditions. And, you know, uh, I'm glad Nancy Pelosi deigned to to endorse it and I hope it goes through. But in terms of the important dynamics of who has in, who has influence on the legislation and who crafts the legislation yeah. that the lawmakers actually pass that's going to remain in the hands of the lobbyists I guarantee uh, you indeed it will we're going to leave it there that was the voice of Jim Cavanaugh Jim is the editor of the polemicist.net you're listening to political misfits on radio sputnik we're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest stay tuned Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Biden administration announced more than a year ago that it would seek to reduce prison populations around the country, not just in response to COVID running rampant through prisons, but also because the U.S. incarcerates more people than any other country on the planet. The Justice Department is encouraging states to implement programs that include job training and basic education, but that hasn't had any effect on the state of Alabama. More people are incarcerated there than ever before, violence is up, and even prison guards are now being arrested for everything from beating prisoners to smuggling contraband into prisons. We're joined by Paul Wright. He's the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the publisher and editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome back, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me on the show, John. Always glad to have you, Paul. Um, Paul, it seems like when we talk, it's never about good news. I was looking at the Brennan Center's website for details about what the Biden administration would like to implement in prisons across the country. And it's encouraging training in job skills, uh, plumbing, electrical work, small engine repair, uh, GED prep, things that that should get 
people ready for release and for reintegration into society. But the policy just isn't trickling down to a lot of states. Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and others seem to be basket cases in this area. The latest issue of Prison Legal News magazine has an article about Alabama. The State Department of Corrections just bought an old 700-bed prison for $15 million, specifically to use to house uh, parole violators. And they've allocated even more money for new prison construction. Uh, That's the opposite of what the Justice Department is encouraging. What's going on in Alabama? Did they just not receive this memo? Well, you know, it's not just Alabama. It's all over the country. And and part of the thing is the financial incentives. I mean, Alabama's about to spend $1.4 billion, that's a billion with a B, to build more prisons. And they're using like over $400 million of that is coming from a COVID relief fund. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, you know, and this is the pattern we're seeing around the country. You know, states and and counties are using uh, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in federal money to build more prisons and jails. And, you know, but but there's also the thing, too, the federal government each year distributes billions of dollars in grants um, to states that, uh, and and actually Joe Biden, when he was in the Senate as as the architect of the 1994 uh, federal uh, crime bill, uh, which did away with Pell Grants. Uh, one of the key features right. of that crime bill was they gave billions of dollars for prison construction to states that changed their sentencing laws to require prisoners to do 85% of their sentences. And that law is still on the books, um, and the states are still getting that money. And so there's no financial incentive. Basically, 30 years ago, Joe Biden and Bill Clinton incentivized the states to increase sentences, gave them billions of dollars, which has flowed every year since then, to to cage more people and keep them locked up longer. All that all all that stuff is still in place. None of those laws have been repealed. The money is still flowing, and you know. And then they talk a little bit about wanting to reduce prison populations. Yet they're still literally shoving shoveling money yeah. at. Um, police prisons and jails around the country to enable them to lock up even more people. And then they're surprised that nothing's changing. Well, they're not changing the infrastructure that they created in the first place. A federal court uh, recently heard from the Justice Department in two separate suits that Alabama was uh, what they called deliberately indifferent to the safety and health of its prisoners. The Department of Justice is accusing Alabama of doing nothing about prisoner-on-prisoner violence, about guard-on-prisoner violence, unconstitutional overcrowding, poor food, poor health care. How many times do they have to be told? I mean, you and I, Paul, have been having this same conversation for almost five years now, and God knows it goes back a lot longer than that. How many times do these states have to lose federal lawsuits before they finally make a change? Well, here's the interesting thing. You know, to speak about Alabama, it actually goes back to the 1970s when uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, first sued them. I think it was 1971 or 73. The entire system was put under federal court supervision because um, their prison conditions were so abysmal then. And the Alabama prison system stayed under federal court supervision for almost the next three decades. Wow. So the late 90s, 1998, 99, that the state of Alabama vacated all these court orders under the Prison Litigation Reform Act. 
But it wasn't because conditions got better. It's just because Congress gave the states a vehicle or a mechanism to weasel out of um, um, federal court supervision without improving conditions. And so since those federal court orders were terminated in the late 90s, things have steadily gotten worse. And what this shows, though, is that, you know, absent any type of external uh, factor like federal court intervention, um, the state, uh, especially at the state, but also at the federal level, the executive and the legislative branches are pretty much totally oblivious when it comes to prison and jail. They don't care. I think that one of the things when you look at American history in the past 50 years, the prime uh, impetus for improving uh, conditions of confinement in jails and prisons has been the federal judiciary. But I think if you talk to any federal judge in America, he or she will tell you that they really don't think that judges are either well-equipped or um, especially well-suited to doing prison reform or supervising prison conditions in the United States. But the reason that they do is because by default, they're the only ones that aren't shirking their duty and mass like the legislatures and like the executive branch has. And frankly, if it weren't for um, the federal judiciary, um, I think that, you know, American prisons and jails would be in the barbaric um, medieval stage they were in uh, before the 1970s when the federal judiciary got involved in, uh, in prison conditions. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland said that the state of Alabama received a letter from the Justice Department two and a half years ago telling them that their treatment of prisoners was unconstitutional. And we've talked about this, you and I, on the show. Uh, it was unconstitutional for a whole variety of reasons, you know, violence and food and conditions. And it was just it's awful in, in that state prison system. Uh, but in the two and a half years since they received that letter from the Justice Department, Alabama has done literally nothing to correct the problem. They're unable to report back to the Justice Department that they've done everything. Um, and, and listen to these figures. The, these astounded me. DOJ said that 52% of all prison guard positions are vacant. 52%. That's actually up from 50% when the letter was sent two and a half years ago. Um, one way to fix that is to parole those prisoners who are eligible, right? Last year, 4,232 Alabama prisoners applied for parole. Had the state followed its own guidelines, 3,216 would have been, should have been paroled, right? How many were actually paroled? 648. 648. Why is this happening, Paul? Especially when the Justice Department says that there are 5,654 too many prisoners in Alabama prisons. And I think that this is one of the things is that, you know, one of the things that compounds a lot of this stuff is, on the one hand, they want to lock up a lot of people, they want to keep them locked up, and they want to do it on the cheap. I mean, the fact that they can't hire enough prison guards is when you look at these, you know, the, the salary for uh, for prison guards in Alabama, typically it's a lot less than what, say, Walmart is paying uh, or other comparable employers in these places. So, you know, they can't, um, you know, they don't want to pay the money for that. But then on the other hand, they also don't want to release people. Um, and that's, um, but this kind of plays itself out across the country, you know, all across the country, 
it's kind of the same old story um, where, you know, they want to lock a lot of people up. They don't want to release them. And in a lot of respects, the, the whole, um, this whole system of parole has been kind of a massive human rights violation because people are sentenced um, to indeterminate sentences by judges. And then the parole board, which is the executive branch of government, actually determines how much time the person actually serves. And when you hear about um, someone being sentenced, say, for example, 10 to life, um, you know, the reality is that, okay, they're going to serve a sentence anywhere between 10 years and literally the rest of their life in prison. And how that plays out um, in real life, you know, you have huge disparities. And, and a lot of this stuff has been, you know, rightly criticized um, by organizations like the Human Rights Defense Center and many others that you see a lot of everything from racial disparities to class disparities and, and everything else. And ironically, the government defends, has defended, um, you know, these indeterminate sentence practices of, well, you know, if, if we have a prison overcrowding issue, it lets us re you release people to reduce the prison population. You see in Alabama and many other places, even with a massive overcrowding, that still doesn't happen. And it's also, there's also something kind of messed up that, um, you know, how much time you serve is going to depend on how much space they have in the prison rather than anything else. Like, you know, do you represent a danger to public safety or, or anything else? Because the implication, of course, is if they ever got overcrowding under control, then so what? People are going to serve much longer sentences because they have room at the end. Um you know, I think these are a lot of the problems, you know, the inherent structural problems, you know, of the American criminal justice system. But, you know, I think with Alabama, though, I think that, you know, the, the real news, I think, though, is when you look at the body count is the fact that the dozens of prisoners that are dying every year um, from violence by other prisoners, also um, violence by staff. And then the medical neglect. Yeah. Um, also taking its toll. That's right. You know, these are all needless deaths. Um, you know, you've got literally dozens and dozens of people dying every year for totally avoidable reasons. You know, this isn't, um, you know, it's not like, you know, people are dying because, oh, this is what happens. And, and I'm saying well-run prisoner jail systems, deaths in custody should be extremely rare. They should be very much the exception and not the norm. And in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and a number of other prison systems, it's become very normalized. Uh, speaking of pay, you mentioned uh, pay a, a minute ago. Uh, when I was in prison, I was being taken out to a uh, to a hospital to get an X-ray of my hand. I had broken my I had broken a finger, so they were taking me out to an X-ray. And they always take you out with two guards, unless of course you intend to run off with the prisoner. Uh, and I, I can ask you about that in a minute uh, because it's in the news. Uh, they take you out with two guards. And um, these two guards that were driving me were talking about how um, how tough it was to make a living as a prison guard. And one of them said, um, if I could just get my GS4, I'd be on easy street. And I said, GS4, how do you feed yourself? And he said, what were you? And I said, I was a GS15 and, and I had trouble making ends meet. Well, here we are. Now, five, six, seven years later, and I've got it in front of me, a, a, a GS3, which is what he was, makes $24,216 a year. 
that comes out to $11.60, you'd make more than that delivering pizzas. But that's what we're paying prison guards all across America. And I would venture to say that in places like Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, they're making less than that. So how do they expect to address some of these Justice Department concerns like guard on prisoner violence or uh, 50% uh, uh, vacancy rates in, in their jobs if they're paying people less than what these people would make at Walmart? You know, I, but I also think it's one of those things that that's kind of very much a regional thing because prison guards in places like uh, New York and Massachusetts and California, for example, are extremely well paid. Oh, are they? Yeah, they're extremely well paid. I mean, usually whenever we're, um, usually they do, um, you know, we'll report on this as well in prison legal news of, you know, we'll try to figure out, okay, who's the highest state, who's the highest paid state employee in these states. And usually after you get out of, you know, the football coaches at the state universities, it'll be some prison psychiatrist or some prison guard that with overtime and base pay, they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, okay. It, it very much depends on, in other words, it's one of those things to say that, you know, prison guards in Alabama are poorly paid, but prison guards in Massachusetts or Connecticut and uh, California and New York are extremely well paid. And and that's why you, you have the problem of, you know, when in, in New York, for example, the governor tries to close prisons and the guards union is picketing and protesting and yeah. fighting for their well-paid jobs. So, you know, it's very much um, it's very much a state by state um, case. And, that, and one of the problems that you've seen, especially in places like New York, um, for example, is that like you go to upstate New York and these rural areas and being a prison guard is literally that's your pathway to a middle class, stable life. Yeah. There are no other jobs. And you get a pension, prison, you get health care and being a prison guard in upstate New York and you're making 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollars a year with full benefits and including a pension, um, and, and paid vacation and things like that, that literally is the best thing going. It's a stark contrast, what you see in, uh, in states like Mississippi or Alabama, where the guards are making 13 or $14 an hour mm -hmm. and, Literally, they could make more money delivering pizza or working at Walmart. Paul, are there any success stories? Are there any states out there that are actually succeeding in reducing prison populations, in, in training and educating prisoners, and, and still protecting citizens from crime? Um, you know, I'm not sure about the, how they're doing on the, you know, the reducing recidivism and stuff, but um, actually New York, the state of New York has significantly reduced its prison population from over from 70, 75,000. Uh, 15 years ago, they're down to about 50,000. The state of New Jersey has done this. Um, the state of California has done it as well. Um, and California has been kind of more of a shell game where basically they transferred a lot of state prisoners to county jails to serve their sentences. Um, New York and New Jersey have done it more by actually reducing sentences. Um, so, you know, th there are... Um, relative success stories. But part of the problem is I think if you have to look at things like in kind of a big picture mode, um, when I started prison legal news in 1990, the United States had around a million people locked up, um, um, had around a million people locked up 
in um, in in state and federal prisons and local jails. And by the year 2000, we had two million locked up, doubled our prison population in a decade. And it's gotten as high as around 2.3, 2.4 million. And in the last couple of years, it's kind of gone down a little bit. Um, you know, it's gone down to maybe around 2 million, 2.1 million. But in some respects, it's still very much um, almost a state-by-state phenomenon in the sense that some states like New York and New Jersey have significantly reduced their prison populations. Other places like Florida and Texas, not so much. Um, and, and other states, their prison populations continued increasing exponentially, so it hasn't really changed. And But it's hard to say that there's definitely a trend going on. You know, I think uh, you know, one of our friends, uh, calculate, I think it was a something project, calculated that at the present um, rates of reducing the prison population, it's going to be 65 or 70 years before they get back down to 1990 levels. And I think the part of the problem is that you know, we have the government, both state and federal, um, they're continuing to lengthen sentence. They continue to criminalize more behavior, and and I, I think that one of the, um, the the leading causes of the rise in prison population wasn't so much that more people have been convicted of, of more crimes, but that they've lengthened sentences. Yes, and and you know, and state legislatures and Congress have just gone through the criminal code. They've criminalized more behavior. Things are criminal acts now that weren't even crimes uh, 30 years ago. They keep criminalizing more behavior, and then they increase the sentences for everything else. And those are the two things that have been the big drivers of mass incarceration. And we don't seem to see any will at the legislative or the executive branch level to start paring down sentences, start reducing the sentences um, that people are serving now. And I think until that's done, we're still going to have this. Um, we're still have prison overcrowding. We're still going to have a problem with mass incarceration. Yes, indeed. Well, that was the voice of Paul Wright. Thank you, Paul Wright, for joining us. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the publisher and editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Uh, normally, we would take a, a short break right now, but there, we're, we're running a little short on time, and there are still a couple of other stories that uh, are important. Yeah, I wanted to comment briefly. We'll, we'll have to get into this more tomorrow if there's more to get into. But President Biden, as we've been on the air, has been speaking about inflation in the economy. Uh, I'm looking at a Washington Post write-up of his speech and doesn't seem to be a lot of detail. He just said, I'm taking it seriously. I know you're hurting. And again, this is not buoy my spirits. Uh, He said, my plan is to lower everyday costs for hardworking Americans and lower the deficit by asking corporations and the wealthiest Americans not to engage in price gouging and pay their fair share. They're still asking. I mean, again, like, I don't know. Maybe tomorrow after a little bit more research time, I will find out some some details that make it sound like a more effective and plausible plan. But again, this is not the first time they've asked corporations not to price gouge. I worry it's not going to be the last. And it doesn't do anything. It also doesn't do anything because it kind of. To, you can make the argument that they have to the way they're if you're a public company and beholden to your shareholders, you got to make all the profits you can. I noticed also that that what Biden announced in this uh, in this speech today uh, was 
Well, there were a couple of measures that he said he wants to implement. Uh, one of them was uh, keeping E15 low ethanol gas through the summer. Okay, right. okay. big deal. Fine. Yeah. Another one was postponing the repayment of student loans again from June to August. Again, yeah, okay. big oh, deal. Yeah. I think we knew that already. Yeah, we did. Yeah. These these are like new, not new. Yeah. Uh, but this this is not how you beat inflation. No. It's just not. And, and asking think, the the rich nicely to please don't gouge us. Sorry, I mean, that doesn't a, work. Price gouging is definitely happening, Absolutely. right? I mean, we talked about Without this last question. week. It is not going to stop happening because you keep talking about it. It doesn't yeah. matter. And you can't shame these people because no one knows who the CEO of Chevron is anyway, or these people making these decisions. It's not like you can go and protest in front of their houses. I mean, you could if you wanted to. Then the government probably. Did you see last night the Senate yeah. passed a bill to increase protection and secret uh, Supreme Court justices' houses? Yeah, Because one woman in the neighborhood in Chevy Chase has been protesting in front of Brett Kavanaugh's house. I mean. One person. But see, this is what happens. You know, they want to pr- who, who do you protect in the end? We'll ask you nicely not to gouge your customers, but yeah. we will craft laws to protect the people who we think are actually important. Yes. John, I've got a question for you. Okay. Are you feeling lucky? Uh, yeah, Do actually, you feel lucky? I feel pretty lucky. Okay, well, that's yeah. good because uh, apparently this report came out yesterday, I believe. Uh, the world has a 50-50 chance. Oh. Of temporarily breaching the 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius of warming in the next five years, right? 1.5 Uh-oh. degrees was the most or a, an ambitious goal uh, of the Paris Climate Accords to keep the average temperature rise under 1.5 degrees. Uh-huh. The, uh, the like, really, we got to do this one was two degrees. So in the in the next few five years. 50-50 that we're going to, the average temperatures are going to scoot on past that. That doesn't mean that, uh, the it doesn't really relate to what the Paris Accord was trying to regulate, right? If we go up one year and down one year, it's it's not the same as a, as a 10-year average, right. which is what right. I think they're trying to regulate. The likelihood that the world will exceed 1.5 degrees every year between 2022 and 2026, that is only 10%. So still higher than I'd like. Right. But considering we have set that as a threshold, you know, uh, as a as a like, hey, if we wanted to be super careful, this is the one we'd aim for. But yeah, they're talking about a long term average rather than a yearly average. Still, do you feel lucky? I don't know. I feel unlucky now for my children. Yeah. They're the ones that are going to have to deal with this. I know it is. I mean, I do feel I take some comfort in the fact that these feedback loops are really hard to predict. And there were a lot of predictions that, you know, glaciers would be melting at a faster rate and certain ones would disappear that haven't disappeared. And so I, you know, I'm hoping that something something happens to arrest, reverse some of these trends. But also it could be that we've we've miscalculated in the other direction and the world really will be in the process of blowing up sooner rather than later. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. You use all your vacation time in the meantime, folks. Also, it is funny to me that we live in a world where this is a, under a breaking news banner. But have you seen the most important news of the day, which is that Elon Musk says he would let Donald Trump back on Twitter? Ugh. That was breaking news breaking. on the Washington Post website. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, he says it was a bad decision and foolish in the extreme. Doesn't think it was correct to ban him alienated a large part of the country and didn't result in Donald Trump not having a voice. Although, it ha- I mean, it, ha- it has sort of, we don't hear as much from him anymore. No. 
But I but the fact that you and I, John, don't hear as much from him anymore doesn't necessarily mean that the people who form his base don't hear as that's much. Right. And that's so it's maybe like we are just less aware of what he's saying, which is which actually is maybe, a nice thing. Nice for us, but is it good for politics, right? Considering how he right. snuck up on everyone in 2016. Yeah, true. So true. maybe not. Maybe as much as we don't like it, it is important, actually. Yeah, good point. Hear what those guys have to say. Yeah. Um, the other headline that I thought was pretty funny, <laughs> John, Joe Manchin becomes a villain in the 2022 Democratic primaries. Oh, now he's a villain. Man, I feel like that took a while. I feel like he should have been cast as a villain for uh, the last uh, year or two. The Democrats are going to have to make up their minds about whether they want to be the big tent party that they're always bragging about Mm -hmm. or if they want to be a progressive party. Because they can't be both. You can't say you're big tent and everybody's welcome in the Democratic Party and then criticize Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema when they don't. Vote party line. Yeah. You know, the other thing I, uh, we got to go, but tomorrow I really want to talk about what, what we are learning from Mark Esper's book. I put learning yeah. in quotation marks. Uh, there's an opinion piece already building on um, what he said about North Korea and a really great illustration of how what some people consider reckless in North Korea, I would consider pretty sane and a move in the right direction. Uh-huh. But we will have Excellent. to save that for tomorrow. Thanks to everyone who joined us today and to the people who helped produce uh, and engineer this show. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.